This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Slower growth out of China, anticipation of a Fed rate hike in the United States, and a global commodity sell-off have contributed to a decline in global markets. David Costin, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Goldman Sachs, recently revised down his year-end outlook for the S&P 500 and corporate earnings. We'll talk about some of the reasons behind these expected declines and what's in store for 2016. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. The U.S. stock market's had a rough couple months. The S&P 500 fell 7% in the third quarter, the largest quarterly decline since the third quarter of 2011. Walk us through why you've cut your forecast for the rest of the year. So as I look out for the balance of 2015, there are really three issues that caused us to lower our profit forecasts, and as a result of that, we lowered our index target for the S&P 500. The first would be slower GDP growth than we had previously been assuming. The data coming from China was also weaker than had been expected, and I think sort of marked slowdown on a number of business activities on the industrial side in particular in China as opposed to the consumer. And finally, oil prices, which uh, had had a pretty strong rally in the early part of this year and then sold off sharply. And it's uh, the firm's perspective that oil prices will remain low for a long period of time. And when you combine those three issues, a weaker economy here in the U.S., still growing, but at a, at a more uh, muted pace, uh, the China slowdown and oil, that is what prompted us to reduce our profit forecast for the S&P 500 to $109, which was a $5 decrease from what we had previously been assuming. Now, $109 is a 3% year-over-year decline in earnings. So we now have the first year of down earnings we've had in a, in a, in a, in a while, really since the expansion, the low part of the, of the you know, crisis in the financial markets in 2009. We've had a pretty robust, very robust profit expansion cycle, and now we've had the first year of a, a profit decline. Now, a key way to think about this is energy. And in simple math is that last year there was $113 of corporate profits for the S&P 500, $113, and $13 of that came from energy. This year, energy will contribute $2 of earnings. So as you can see, the diminution of energy earnings from $13 to $2 is really what's a major reason for the reduction in profit forecasts. And as we look into 2016, I am anticipating a recovery in profits to about $120. So we'll have almost a 10% increase in earnings next year, which is still a, a positive growth. And that's why my anticipation and forecast is that the S&P 500 index level will rise from around 2000 at the end of this year to around 2100. Given your description of what's going on in the market through the end of the year and what's happened already today and some of the headwinds we face, how should investors be thinking about the U.S. market? I think the best way for investors to think about the U.S. equity market is flat is the new up. Now, what do I mean by the term flat is the new up? Well, since the 2009 low, the U.S. equity market has had an extraordinary run. And as a result, those returns are unlikely to be repeated as we look into the next several years. And so the idea of a flat or a flat-ish type of equity market is what people should be expecting. In fact, what I'm forecasting for the trajectory of the U.S. stock market over the next several years. And so the idea of flat is the new up is the kind of return that really 
uh, investors should be uh, anticipating in their models across the, uh, the U.S. stock market. Let's talk about oil for a second. Our macroeconomists say the lower price of oil should be good for the economy longer term. But in the short term, you're saying the impact on the stock market is going to be almost wholly negative. Correct. It's, a, uh, it's basically what's tantamount to a tax cut for individuals. The idea of lower energy prices translates into lower gasoline prices, and as a result of that, there's more discretionary spending power uh, on the part of the consumer. So that's a positive, particularly for consumer discretionary stocks. We haven't seen that translate into, uh, into spending at the, both the macroeconomic data, nor have we seen that really on the, uh, on the spending side from, uh, from consumer discretionary stocks. However, from a profit-level forecast and the amount of profits from the energy sector, that diminution is directly affecting, obviously, the overall profits as an uh, S&P 500. Now, there's an additional implication of lower profits for energy companies, and the implications are very important for uh, overall spending by corporate America. And that is the idea that about one out of every $3, one out of every $3 of S&P 500 capital spending is conducted or is, uh, is, is a result of spending by energy companies. That's one out of $3. And that is significant because our forecast, as a result of lower oil prices, the capital spending budgets of the energy companies have been slashed dramatically. And as a result, that has implications for profits for industrial companies and materials companies who were the beneficiaries when there was the big capital improvement cycle on the part of energy companies in the last several years. And so the idea of lower energy prices, which is the Goldman Sachs uh, firm-wide forecast, has significant and very important implications for profits for the S&P 500 and, by extension, capital spending, which has implications, of course, for the overall economy. So the lower capital expenditures on behalf of the energy companies, but on behalf of really the whole economy, could have really long-term impacts for the entire market. And there's definitely a longer-term impact from lower spending by energy companies. If you get more detailed within the energy companies, for example, we have some of the large-cap integrated major oil companies where they have stronger balance sheets, but some of their offshore assets, for example, will be less valuable in a, a low-energy price environment. Some of the E&P, or exploration and, and production companies, have better assets in terms of their cost of extracting the oil, but they have weaker balance sheets. And so there's definitely implications for corporate actions in the, in the energy space. But from a overall spending, it does suggest that capital spending, my forecast is that capital spending for S&P 500 companies will decline this year, and that would be the first time we've seen a decline for several years. You've taken us beneath the surface of the index in that one area. Talk a little bit about other sectors and what types of stocks you might expect to perform better in this environment. So I think there's three strategies that would be appropriate in this kind of equity market environment. Uh, the first is U.S. companies where their end market sales are domestic. So the domestic-facing companies have had excellent outperformance from a price point of view, but that's largely been driven by the fact that they've had pretty strong end demand, and that would compare or contrast against companies that are more export-oriented. And this goes across every sector of the market. So while there are some sectors with much more significant amount of external sales as opposed to other industries that are more domestic, it really doesn't matter. The idea of more domestic revenues really is a price and volume story. The idea of the volume is the U.S. economy is growing probably close to 2.5% this year. 
other uh, economies in Europe or in, uh, in Japan, for example, growing more slowly. So if you're a company that's selling into a domestic market, your end market is growing faster than, say, those other two markets in Europe or Japan. And then your price, the fact if you are a domestically facing business, you don't have the headwind of a weaker dollar. Now, that's why the price and volume work to the advantage of companies that are domestically facing. Uh, the Goldman Sachs view is that the U.S. dollar will continue strengthening pretty significantly, uh, very significantly, against both the euro and appreciating against the yen. And that's a, a big fundamental strategy going forward. So I would say domestic facing businesses would be your most important strategy. Second strategy to think about would be companies returning cash to shareholders and the idea of companies returning cash to shareholders through dividends and buybacks. Given uncertainty in the market, this is a way of supporting valuation. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, in a little bit about valuation in the market, but the idea of companies returning cash to shareholders is an important theme. And I'd say the third one to focus on, and I'm focused on this uh, in particular, is high-quality stocks. And it's difficult to define quality, but the idea behind uh, higher-quality stocks, which had a, a strong rally in the last month or so, would be companies that have stronger balance sheets that have more stable sales and earnings growth, that have a little bit larger market cap than average. Uh, these companies, in an uncertain environment, which is what we, I think, would characterize right now with the economic uh, data is coming in a little bit mixed and the prospect of a Fed hike coming uh, at the end of this year, perhaps, which is our forecast, those companies would be uh, benefiting. So the bottom line would be U.S. revenue exposure, cash, return to shareholders, and high quality would be strategies that we would advocate investors pursue now. Let's talk a little bit about China. You've talked about how China's slowdown could hurt earnings in the U.S., but you've also pointed out that S&P 500 companies attribute just 2% of their overall revenue to China. So why does the slowdown in China have such significant implications for the U.S. market? From an investor confidence perspective, I think the idea of an economic slowdown in China is causing investors to ask a couple of questions, one of which is, is it possible for the U.S. economy to grow alone, and how important is the decoupling, i.e., could the U.S. economy continue growing at a pretty solid pace, or is it uh, somehow going to be dragged down by confidence is at the heart of the equity market's interpretation of the weak economic growth? It's particularly important for those companies who are exporting to China for obvious reasons. But I think from a confidence or evaluation perspective in the market, uh, weakness in China is causing some concern. And that's something that we are certainly highly focused on right now. Let's talk a little bit more about buybacks. You talked about that as a theme for investing. After capital spending, buybacks are the most common use of corporate cash this past year. Can companies keep up that pace or is the influence of buybacks on valuation on the wane? So the subject of uses of corporate cash is probably one of the first or second questions that most frequently comes up in my client uh, meetings with portfolio managers. And it really uh, is at the core of the investment decision inside the CEO office and the, the so-called C-suite, as well as decisions on the part of investors in evaluating different companies, how companies are spending cash. And there's basically a waterfall. The first use of cash that most companies consider is capital spending. And some of that may be maintenance capex to keep their plant and, and operations going. Some may be expansion capital spending. In other cases, it's research and development dollars that are being uh, allocated. An alternative use of growth money or growth initiatives would be corporate M&A. So basically capex, 
R&D and cash M&A or corporate spending are growth initiatives. And after that would be initiatives involving returning cash to shareholders via dividends and buybacks. So that's your basic hierarchy or your waterfall of how companies tend to spend money. Now, what's interesting is capacity utilization in the U.S. economy is running about 80%, uh, a little less than that. And that's the long term, the 40-year average. So basically, many industries, most industries, frankly, there is not a need for incremental capital spending. We reviewed a little bit earlier in our conversation about energy companies. Of course, they are reducing CapEx dramatically because there's really no need for much spending in that environment given the, uh, the low oil prices. But that also extends to many other different industries. So if they're not spending money for CapEx, and again, we're forecasting broadly flat, basically dramatic decline in capital spending by energy companies, but an increase in some other industries, but basically flat, the companies have a high quality problem, which is their corporate margins are running at record high levels, about 9%. So basically, what should companies do with $2.1 trillion of cash that they are going to be spending this year? And if you look at that waterfall, basically buybacks become a default option for many firms. And I'm expecting a big increase, probably you know, close to 20% increase in repurchases, share repurchases this year. Uh, which is going to be a reason for why I believe those companies that are returning cash to shareholders through dividends and buybacks will outperform. So that's, a, a, I think, a key focus for investors. I think the idea of activist shareholders pressing managements to return cash to shareholders is another driver for why companies are directing more cash back to shareholders. And in many ways, it makes sense. Again, if the capacity utilization is running close to long-term averages, there's really not a, an immediate need for corporates to reinvest in their business. And therefore, there's a sort of default that comes to uh, buybacks, and that becomes a, a source of cash. Often when you see capacity utilization rates at those levels and not a lot of good alternatives for cash, you see companies make strategic acquisitions. And we've seen a lot of merger activity over the past year and a half. Do you expect to see that trend continue? Could that be a catalyst for the market? I believe it will continue. And there's really many ways of engaging in corporate activity. One would be using shares as a currency, sort of stock for stock deals. And the other would be using cash as a, uh, as a vehicle. And Obviously, there's also debt assumptions, other, other ways of, of financing a merger. But what I've been focusing in particular was on the use of cash and the idea of companies spending more in terms of uh, acquiring either in-market rivals or private companies. I think where you're get, seeing a lot of cash spent is actually on private companies, so publicly traded Private owners don't want uh, stock as a uh, compensation. And, and, so, yeah. and so they may take they, yeah. they may take stock, mythic cash, but the idea is so-called tuck-in acquisitions or private enterprises coming into the under the fold of a big corporation where there is a desire on the part of management to spend the money. And if they're not spending it for CapEx and a certain amount for R&D, then sort of the other growth initiative is really spending it on acquisitions. And I do anticipate M&A activity to be increasing pretty materially it has been increased this year and also increased in 2016. So Goldman Sachs has been saying for a while now that December is the most likely time for a Fed rate hike, although recent jobs data could well push that into 2016. Whenever it happens, how do you expect the equity markets to respond? So the, uh, as you point out, the Goldman Sachs baseline forecast from my, my colleague Jan Hatzius, who's our global chief economist, is uh, that December will be the first Fed hike. And I believe that the response to the equity market for equity investors will probably be mixed in the sense that there will be a sigh of relief that the 
initial hike is actually taking place because there's a lot of going back and forth. Was it going to go in uh, earlier this year? Was then it was September and ended up not going in September? And so the, the idea of they're beginning a tightening cycle in some ways will be a positive. But the history shows very consistently that when the Fed begins to hike, you get a PE multiple contraction across the U.S. market. And I believe ultimately what you will see is the Fed hiking. You're still getting economy growing. U.S. economy is growing. Earnings will be growing, but your multiple will be fading. I think that is a central conclusion that we come in our analysis, which is the idea that the U.S. stock market is trading at very high valuation levels. Your initial starting valuation today is very high, somewhere above 90th percentile of your historical valuation on a PE multiple basis. You can also look at that on an enterprise value to sales basis, which is how many technology investors look at it. The market is also extremely highly valued on that metric. The private equity community looks at a enterprise value to EBITDA. That's their preferred method of valuation. The market is also highly valued on that metric. And you can look at price to book, uh, where the market is trading around 2.8 times price to book, which is historically a pretty high price to book multiple. So all these different metrics, even metrics related to interest rates, and of course interest rates are very low, all these metrics suggest the U.S. equity market is pretty highly valued. I would say, the way I like to characterize it is at the high end of a range of fair value. So it's at the high end of a range of fair value. And therefore, when the Fed begins to hike, and our belief on economics uh, is that the Fed will hike in the beginning of a Fed hiking cycle, and there will be a steady path to higher policy rates, that will be associated with a lower PE multiple. So at the end of the day, I think the U.S. stock market basically grows earnings but fades in the multiple, and that's why the trajectory of the S&P 500 will be pretty muted, looking at around 5% price gains each of the next couple of years with a dividend yield around 2%. gives you a total return of about 7% per year, which is a forecast we have. For not, the bad, years. Not, um, not bad, but not phenomenal. Uh, not bad, but not great. More in line with historical types of returns. I think the last several years have been so extraordinary returns, we have to have some kind of a mean reversion. So even with the slower job numbers, the U.S. economy, you said earlier, remains one of the brighter spots amongst the developed economies, at least. What's the market telling you about the future path of the U.S. economy? The market has been uh, focused on defensives versus cyclicals is one of the central splits in the market. And defensive stocks have been bid up to very high levels, uh, average multiple now around 17 and a half, whereas the cyclical stocks, which often trade a little bit lower multiples, that has come down to around 14 and a half times forward earnings. And so the equity market has been pretty defensively tilted. And I think that is suggestive of uncertainty uh, that investors are expressing about the path of the economy. I think it's interesting in the response to the Fed's decision about not hiking interest rates in September. The equity investors viewed that as a uh, expression of opinion by the Fed on the future of growth, whereas the fixed income investors viewed that as a decision by the Fed reflecting their view of inflation, the lack of inflation. And so both, of course, are part of the dual mandate of the Fed, but the equity investors are looking for some signs of sustained growth. And you can see that in a couple of different ways. One, we may see that in the third quarter conference calls, which are scheduled to take place really over the next three or four weeks. 
and we'll hear from managements uh, in terms of their discussions qualitatively around their reported financial results and their path of activity looking forward, their, their business. So that would be one sign that investors will be looking for. I'll certainly be looking for that as a potential indication that growth is on the horizon. But the second is the economic data, and the economic data has been mixed. It's been strong in some pockets, less so in, in other areas. But the equity market, valuation-wise, has really been pretty flat versus where it was uh, at the start of the year. That is, in fact, pretty much where we, uh, where we stand right now. And I think the market is waiting for some uh, indication that the growth is going to reaccelerate. And then I think that is where you get some uh, earnings growth. What poses the greatest risk to your outlook for the rest of the year? I'd just say that the two areas uh, we're focused on from a pure Data-driven analysis would be the third quarter earnings, which we'll be getting again, as I said, over the next uh, month or so. And to the extent that we get both uh, results, but in particular guidance for the last quarter of the year in terms of their their business, I believe that uh, consensus earnings are too high and therefore there will be negative earnings revisions. And that's generally associated with a downward pressure on the market. And the prospect of better economic data would suggest that the Fed is more and more likely, to the extent that we get better data, would be more and more likely to be hiking interest rates in December. So that is the potential headwinds that equity markets are facing. I'd say the pushback against that would be the net positioning in the futures market, which for the first time in a decade is actually negative. Uh, that is to say there's net shorts in the futures market, which therefore if it has to get covered would be it would be a positive trend. And the, uh, the second would be corporate buybacks. Now we've talked about buybacks before, but you have to understand very importantly that there's a seasonality pattern to this. And 25% of the annual buybacks in the market take place in the months of November and December. Corporations are typically blacked out about five weeks before they report earnings. That is to say, companies are prohibited from repurchasing their shares on a discretionary basis during the month before they report earnings. And once earnings are over, and this is, of course, October being the peak of earnings for this quarter, reporting cycle, that means November, December, we'll see a big increase in my forecast for the spending on buybacks. So both net futures positioning and potential prospect for corporate share repurchases at the end of the year would be your, your affirmative cases for why the market would push higher. But again, I think that gets tempered by weak earnings, negative earnings revisions, and the prospect of higher interest rates. So you talk to a lot of clients of the firm literally every day. What are your clients saying about how they're positioning themselves for the end of the year and then into 2016? There is a general belief that it's a cloudy market and the dispersion of returns has remained very narrow. By that terminology, what I mean is the separation of returns within individual sectors and across the market is in a, an unusually narrow range, which means that individual stock picking has been particularly difficult. Choosing stocks is always hard, but it is particularly hard now, just from a mathematical or arithmetic perspective. And so there's been a slight tilt towards larger cap stocks a desire for stronger balance sheets and higher quality, characterizing companies that they would prefer to own. And a bit of a hedge against the uncertainty. Sort of a hedge against uncertainty. So there's a somewhat of a lack of conviction. And there's, as I indicated earlier, there's a tilt towards defensive stocks, which although they're bid up in valuation to pretty high levels, the view is that tempering of risk, uh, there's been a reluctance to step out too far on the risk curve. And so that is, I think, given some interesting opportunities, particularly in technology, 
some of the faster growing technology stocks, which have in some cases had pretty sharp sell-offs, uh, recently higher volatility. But there's been uh, corporate clients, they're seeing a lot of outflows. So there's been a tilt towards higher liquidity stocks. I'd say those are some of the themes that come uh, from my travels. And I do see a large cross-section of uh, portfolio managers. Just briefly, certainly in recent weeks, there's been a lot of volatility in the marketplace. What do you make of that? Is that unusual or is it just, again, sort of a reversion to more volatile times after a period of long, pretty steady uh, markets? The uncertainty, as we've discussed, is still on the higher end of a, of a range. There's always a range of how people think about the risks in the market. And the weak economic data in China in particular has been uh, a cause of concern. The volatility in the Chinese market, Chinese equity market, has been uh, you know, another extreme. source. Yeah. Pretty, very extreme and has been a source of some concern about what that's suggesting from a policy perspective. Uncertainty politically, both domestically, what's happening in uh, Europe. There's just a general sense of unsettledness, which I think has been translated from a macro point of view into higher volatility. Negative earnings revisions in particular are often associated with rising sense of, is there still more to come? Is really the question. G earnings have been revised down. Is this the end or is this the precursor of uh, what may lie ahead? So as a result, I think volatility you know, has remained uh, pretty elevated. But since the U.S. economy is ultimately growing and our forecast is uh, a little below 2.5% real GDP growth, that would be generally associated with a volatility declining slowly. Right now, the levels of volatility at which the market is trading in the vol market is more associated with recessions, and we think that's pretty unlikely. And therefore, I would expect and anticipate that vol would decline slowly as uh, it becomes clear that the economic data is uh, ultimately going to be more associated with growth in the U.S. and certainly not a downturn. Okay. On that positive note, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jake. Uh, very interesting. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on October 5th, 2015. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.